This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Summer Crenshaw, who's the COO and co-founder of Tiller. Summer, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. I'm a huge fan and I've been listening to you guys for quite a while now, especially through this entrepreneurial journey I've got with Tiller. Awesome. Okay, well, first things first, I want to point our listeners to your website. And the the name is said, you say it Tiller, but it's spelled T-I-L-R, just T-I-L-R. Dot com. Nice short four-letter domain, Tiller.com. Okay, Summer, give us the elevator pitch for Tiller. Yeah, so Tiller is a mobile-first technology that matches people's skills to company job requirements to automate the recruitment process. So really, we're in the business of eliminating discrimination and closing the skills gap through our technology. All right, tell us how it works. Yeah, so we have um, iOS and Android mobile applications for our workers, um, who we call Tiller community members or affectionately known as Tillers. Um, they download mobile apps, um, go through a skill inventory in which they tell us a bit about some of the, the positions that they've had, um, which really uh, indicates kind of the amalgamation of the skill set that they have over the time of in the course of their career. Um, after that, they go through a brief onboarding um, call, which is really like a first interview or a vetting call. And on the back of that, they conduct a background check. And once the background check is cleared, they're on demand ready. So they're admitted into um, our community so they can start receiving job offers. So on the flip side for the companies, uh, we have um, a web application that the companies um, post job opportunities. Uh, they're using um, the same neutralized data in order to indicate the requirements of the job. Um, and once uh, the job posts, live um, out into the platform. Um, our algorithm goes to work and it matches to individuals that have uh, a matching skill set. Once there's a match made, our community members receive a push notification for a job offer. And that offer will indicate how far uh, the job is, the type of requirements that um, the individual company would have, uh, the schedule that they have, the rate of pay. Um, and if the member uh, decides they want the position, they click accept and they go to work. Awesome. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about what types of jobs and what kind of employer segments you really address with Tiller. Absolutely. So when we were when we were launching uh, Tiller, we we really um, allowed our MVP process, um, you know, allowed the market to really dictate uh, the type of industry we would, we would be best served for. So during our beta period, we had everything from a restaurant all the way to a payroll company using the platform. Um, and what we really found was that. Uh, the companies that really um, were driven to use our, our technology um, were a couple of core segmentations. Number one, the gig economy is definitely um, driving a, a lot of adoption from our company side. So companies that are looking to augment staff from, let's say, a, a day of folding T-shirts or um, a, a, uh, an inventory uh, kind of, of day or maybe even market research where there has, is a campaign of asking questions. Um, there are organizations that use it from that capacity. And then there are organizations that are saying, you know, um, at the end of the day, I can't find candidates um, and the traditional methodology is not working. And since Tiller is a trusted third party, um, you know, we're not allowing companies to go look at candidates and candidates to go look at companies. You know, we're actually making that match for them. 
Um, so having that new that new talent pool is definitely what's what's really driving uh, companies to our platform. So core areas really do match up to, to what we're seeing with the Bureau of Labor Statistics around industries at such as um, let's say industrial, um, you know, manufacturing, logistics, retail, hospitality. Um, Customer service and administration are, are some of the core areas, um, and those are all growing segmentation still within the U.S. economy. And But these would be, just listening to you talk a little bit, of, these would be typically uh, jobs for, that are not served by traditional recruiting agencies because they're relatively lower paid than, say, you know, you're looking for a, an attorney or you're looking for a software engineer. So they're, they're more... Uh, what's the right way to say it? I guess, I guess uh, just the way I said it, which is there are industries that are relatively underserved by traditional staffing solutions. Is that right or not? Yes. You know, I think it's it's underserved in, in one capacity from, let's say, uh, traditional staffing platforms. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, technologies that are out there that have been around for 15 plus years. I started my career in this space at CareerBuilder.com when it was a startup. Um, and yeah. so did my, my uh, co-founder. So, you know, what we what we saw, and it was a luxury of growing up in the space when we were selling against um, newspaper advertisement, um, is that, you know, we, we saw this, this really large shift to the online space. Um, but there was this huge area of, um, you know, where industry, you know, HR executives wanted to use the technology to fill every type of role. So then you've got, you know, $8 an hour, $10 an hour, you know, minimum wage, depending on the location. Um, you know, jobs that are, you know, being required to go online, fill out a, fill out their application, plus submit a resume, plus, you know, jump through all of these extra hoops just to get in line in the way that, you know, traditional uh, technologies really are made to eliminate candidates and not really include candidates. And so that big challenge that we were seeing um, was one of the, the big factors in creating a technology that, number one, could neutralize data, but also really focus on what we found is, a, is the core value or the core, core currency of our workforce, which is our skills and our ability to execute jobs. So for yeah. us, um, you know, the, the area that, you know, we serve most often are, are individuals that are grossly underutilized because they either, maybe they have a lack of aptitude in doing that, you know, following the traditional process, um, or, you know, they're, they're a new workforce or a new value, uh, valued individual that, um, is either re-entering the workforce um, or is traditionally not um, looked at because of maybe um, the titles that they've had previously or the types of roles that they've had. Um, and since we're title agnostic, we're able to open up an entire talent pool that's never been seen before. Okay, so I, I suppose you can make an analogy to a dating site. This is a two-sided market. You're trying to make ma- matches. Yes. Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be relevant here in a moment. And and in uh, in most dating sites, you allow the two parties to decide for themselves whether they want to meet and what what the match is. But you're you're saying actually that doesn't work so well in jobs. There, we would rather have a matchmaker, us, who sits there mm-hmm. and makes the match. Give us the argument for why you need a matchmaker as opposed to just letting the employer just look at look at the evidence. Absolutely. So, you know, in the traditional recruitment process, um, there's natural bias that occurs. And it can be as simple as, you know, you could have a recruiter that doesn't know how to pronounce someone's name on a resume or an application. Mm. So they won't even call the person. You know, I always joke when I was younger, 
um, I wouldn't get called because people didn't didn't think my name Summer was an actual real name. And it wasn't until a, an HR executive met me many years later, they were like, you know, I never called you because I thought it was a fake name. Um, huh. And I, you know, I, I laughed at that. But then I was like, you know, there are so many other types of discrimination and bias that go into the recruitment process. And some of it is just human nature. Um, and it's not, um, you know, a somebody being like, consciously, um, you know, bias, although that obviously does occur, you know, I think that that's one of the, the biggest, you know, reasons why, you know, algorithms can do such a great job at being that matchmaker and, and allowing um, the technology to, to do that. The other magic that goes behind that is, you know, sheer time, you know, the volume of candidates and the volume of, of individuals um, that come through a traditional, you know, job board, so to speak, you know, it takes so much time and effort for a hiring manager to really sift through that. Typically, on average, we're seeing between 37 and 46 days in order to fill a minimum wage job. Um, and because of that, it's, it's coming down to the fact that, you know, our hiring managers, you know, really, truly can't um, take deep dives into the types of candidate flow that they have. Um, and if they're spending 15 seconds uh, to basically um, exclude you out of the process, then, how great is is that um, talent pool that you're actually missing out on? So our goal is to really uncover the full breadth of our talent pool that we have residing in our backyard. Um, and, you know, this becomes really relevant as we're seeing, you know, our unemployment rate shrink um, to the lows that we're seeing today. Yeah. So I wonder, you mentioned the bias, and I sus- you, you mentioned a, a sort of benign bias, but there could certainly be bias that's based on, on race or ethnicity or gender that would be a little more pernicious. Are you able to sell the reduction in bias as a feature to the hiring companies? Like, are they aware of that? And is it something they themselves are interested in addressing? You know, I, I, I do think we, um, you know, we don't emphasize that, you know, we understand that there are, there occurs bias within their personal recruitment mm-hmm. process. You know, I think that most um, companies understand they need diversity. So I think yep. that we really truly focus on inclusion and not yep. the fact that, you know, somebody on your process is causing a bias in, in, right. your, in your organization. You know, again, you know, when you think about the traditional process, we're, we're, we're built to eliminate candidates out of the, the, the process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so by switching the way or pivoting the way we think about candidates, you know, we can start to focus on the skill currency and just allowing that match to occur. We naturally see a better, um, more diverse workforce. All right. I want to circle back on something you said. You emphasize this notion of a skills-based assessment. So you're not looking at necessarily, well, I, I don't know what you're not looking at, maybe educational background or something like that. But uh, but can you give us some examples of what these elements of skill are and and how they differ from what people are normally looking at when they look at a candidate? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about um, who we are as individuals, um, typically we think about, you know, if you're a lower skilled individual or somebody that maybe you're starting your career, um, maybe you don't have a lot of experience, you're putting in applications, um, typically you're, you're running in a, a few different ways. Number one is going to be a traditional application, and so that's going to be, you know, chronological order of the jobs that you've had, mm-hmm. and then it might be a bit more robust when you look at a resume. Um, one of the things that we do naturally, um, and this is something we're actually coached on even as early as, you know, going in, you know, through college and coming out of college, um, is that uh, you exclude experience that may not be relevant to a specific job. So maybe in college, you know, for instance, you know, I was a retail manager at 
um, a local store in the mall, you know, that never made it to my resume. But there were absolutely skills that I learned personally um, that carried into my career, you know, very early on. I managed a $7 million store. That was a great opportunity for me to manage things like uh, a P&L and looking at, you know, shrink within a retail, you know, mm-hmm. system. Although I went into marketing and in public relations, um, those were still great skills that I had. So when we think about an assessment and the way that we build our technology was saying, okay, if we became title agnostic, um, what would that look like for our candidate pool? So what we've mm-hmm. done is we've allowed our candidates, um, and a great example is we had an individual um, that uh, came onto our platform. She had two jobs previously that she put into the platform. Number one was a server at a restaurant. Number two was a customer service representative. So under customer service representative, she put in um, some basic skills that we have. So we have a, a, a technology kind of candy crush like, if you will. It allows you mm-hmm. um, to put in your, your top level uh, title and it basically un- unlocks a, a basket of skills underneath that um, are typical for that type of job. So things like handling customer complaints, uh, data entry for customer service are really, really relevant. Um, and then uh, that individual is able to in- enter her proficiency level um, for that particular skill. So she was able to go through that fairly quickly. And then on the server, she does the same thing that she's able to um, handle, uh, you know, cash transactions or financial transactions within serving. Um, so all of those skills add up to, to quite a lot. On average, uh, an individual comes in with 27 skills on the back of their onboarding call. Um, mm-hmm. They typically get closer to 70 to 100, and that's because we've now coached them to put in every every type of job that they've had because we believe your skills are very valuable, mm-hmm. and it's a true amalgamation of who you are. And on the back of that, we we were able to match her to a bank teller job, and it's because she had skills from the customer service job and from the serving job. Now, yeah. she would have never, ever been been really looked at if somebody was to look at, let's say, an application or a resume and saw a server and maybe a customer service job. They wouldn't have called her back in that regard. But because the algorithm looked at it and said, wait a minute, you have every skill associated with being a bank teller. You would be perfect for this job. She now has a shot at going in and working for the organization and making sure it's a great fit for her and for the for the company. And on the flip side, you know, as we, we talk about closing a global skill gap, we understand that some of the gap that we're seeing in the skills that we feel we don't have within our backyard, you know, obviously there's there's true skill gap. We know, you know, some of the STEM um, situations that we're seeing, but there is still a technological skill gap in that, you know, we're missing um, the ability to uncover the true nature of our individuals. And if we can actually inventory out the types of skills our people have, we can easily close the gap because we can identify the one or two skills that populations don't have. So it's a much larger impact to, you know, um, not just an, not just a company or an organization looking to close that, but if you think about a city or even a state, you know, we're able to say, wait a minute, we have populations of people that are are very close to being able to be a developer or to be an engineer or to, you know, do certain types of, of jobs if we just did some training and development for for that particular area. Summer, what what evidence do you have that this works? Well, so today um, we have uh, placed over 128,000 shifts into our platform. Um, wow. We have just over 30,000 uh, community members, and we've been in market um, just over about a year and five months, um, mm-hmm. and we're here in the Midwest, so uh, concentrating on currently um, Cincinnati, Columbus, Dayton, Indianapolis, soon to launch in Louisville, and then we'll be in about 15 cities by the end of the year. 
Okay, so that's the evidence that people uh, like that you're getting good uptake on the use of the service. But do you have any way of validating that the matches you're making are actually good matches? Absolutely. So one of the things that we wanted to do is, you know, you have to make a bit of a leap and it's a part of, you know, building something towards artificial intelligence. Um, you know, we're teaching our systems every day to validate. So we have to have that closed loop feedback. Um, so the way that we validate that now is through um, allowing both our employers as well as the, the workers um, rate one another. So uh, our employers are actually rating skills and they're rating and validating that the, the person was a good match, as well as, you know, the individual uh, member saying, absolutely, that's that's what the company, you know, the company put in these requirements. Those were the requirements that they entered. So that helps us close that feedback loop. Um, in addition to that, um, another, I think, probably even more um, relevant way to validate that is by how many uh, community members are given um, full-time permanent roles with organizations and yeah. completely taken off our platform. Um, you know, I would say we're seeing between uh, 60 and 70% of our people are being pulled off platform to work yeah. full-time permanent roles with those companies. So, you know, they might've started as a gig worker or, you know, somebody that was in a, let's say a seasonal seasonal job. And then all of a sudden the companies are saying, you know what, I'm not losing this person. You know, I want to take them off the, the tiller platform. Um, so I think that that's a better validation, quite honestly. Yep. Um, although I do like having a closed feedback loop to give that data, um, that data back to uh, our, our, our uh, you know, development team. But I think, um, you know, those are the success stories I think that we all as entrepreneurs, uh, you know, love and dream for. Say a little bit about, about how you make money and who pays. Absolutely. So we are um, a pay for performance uh, organization on our marketplace. We make 25% above the hourly wage of our workers. Um, so we're never predatory against our workers. They don't have to pay anything and they never, they would never um, be affected by a fee. Um, on the contrary, when we see, um, you know, you know, kind of traditional uh, staffing firms, you know, um, many individuals make way less than their counterparts that they work right next to. And um, our, our clients actually are really, um, really driven by parity between the worker that's on our platform right next to their traditional workers. So they absolutely pay the same amount um, and, and are happy to pay the, the fee that we have. Um, in addition to that, of course, there's a conversion fee, which kind of ranges um, per role and, you know, kind of the longevity that the individual has been uh, working with the organization. And that's if they proceed from being a temporary worker to a permanent worker. Is that right? Correct. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So take us back to the beginning. Where did the idea come from? Yeah. So um, myself and my co-founder, Carissa, um, she and I had worked um, with Career Builder uh, for quite some time. And we actually had spun off um, into our own boutique uh, marketing and, and kind of, um, you know, branding firm that was actually truly focused in employment branding, um, much less that of, of, you know, kind of consumer brands. And mm -hmm. one of the areas that we were truly focused on was, um, you know, kind of the advent of social media. Um, and this was in early 2008, 2009. Um, so one of the things that we were seeing is, you know, some of the, the values we started to see change, you know, especially early in, in social media, you know, it was, oh, that's just a technology for kids. And then we were hearing, you know, from an employment branding perspective, oh, I, I, I'll never recruit on social media or, you know, oh, millennials, they'll, you know, they're just going to stay at a company for a year and leave. And then all of a sudden we started to hear this, like, and, and see this big wave of value shift. It no longer was a millennial value for flexibility. It was a, a overall 
worker value. It was, it was, mm-hmm. you know, it, it surpassed all generations. So that was one kind of big area. And then we had a, a great client that we worked for um, that did a lot of research around, um, you know, kind of the K through career and the mentality that every, every person should go to college and, and how we were missing out on um, a lot of individuals that just weren't, weren't made to go to college. And, and we never looked at the skills needed to succeed later in life. If, if the, if the, the thesis went away from just going to college, get good grades and get a career. And so that was something that kind of um, really resonated with us. And for me, um, I, I came from a very poor family and, you know, I, I saw the hourly workers, the people struggling to get a job, the people that couldn't, you know, the only way they ended up getting a job was if they knew somebody at, you know, a factory or, um, you know, if somebody recommended them in and, you know, applying for job after job. So those were a couple of key factors. We were approached by an individual um, that had an idea for a mobile application for um, a uh, agriculture app um, that would allow individuals to, to be kind of contacted on demand when crops came up. Mm. And we looked at it and we're like, huh, that's really interesting. Um, and so we started talking about it. We're like, well, I like that immediacy and that, that new, that flip on looking at no longer this peer-to-peer model, but actually looking at an individual to a company. That's mm. something that we thought was really interesting, um, especially, you know, in early 2015. That's, it was, it was, you know, everybody was just talking about Uber at the time and, and you know, really the transportation uh, realm of, of revolutionizing that. And so we actually uh, went back to the individual and um, kind of proposed the idea that we had. Uh, it turned out he was uh, an investor and had a great partner. Um, and we kind of came together and, and had a bit of a discussion about, you know, our thought around, you know, why would you go into one kind of um, industry when you could really go across the board? And if you went across the board, you know, how could we transform the way recruitment is done? Um, and we said, let's look at the skills as a currency rather than, you know, the traditional, you know, approach and putting it on a mobile device. Um, so let's let's transform that. And then also let's look at um, kind of the gig economy and where the contingent workforce is emerging. You know, we, we know the trend is going to continue. So how do we look at that? And um, off of that, uh, those gentlemen um, introduced us to our CTO, um, who is also now our co-founder, Luke Bijan. And um, the three of us uh, basically locked ourselves in a room with a whiteboard, uh, whiteboarded out the concept and um, on the back of that, we secured a $1 million seed round, and uh, we used that to um, build our, our technology and uh, get us to MVP. And then on the back of that, we started raising a friends and family round and, and raised just over $6 million on friends and family. Um, well, those are good friends to have. That's pretty good Pretty good money. Right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, you could, um, maybe you could say just a little bit. You're, you may be my first guest from Cincinnati. It's not... Uh, typically, the the source of uh, of tech entrepreneurs, at least not not I'm, right. I'm sure I have a bias on my show, but um, <laughs> talk a little bit about talk talk a little bit about whether the the I suppose the strengths and weaknesses of being outside of Silicon Valley uh, to, yeah. to doing this kind of business. Yeah. Well, I, I think you just pointed out one: um, the ability for you know us to to gain um, national interest rapidly is a bit more difficult, I think. Um, I think it's um, a, a challenge when you're connecting to uh, the VC community. Um, I think that there's still a bit of a mentality, although it is rapidly changing, um, thankfully. I think there's still a bit of a mentality that it's easier to do business when you can just drive down the street and talk to, um, you know, you know, talk to your portfolio, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
but I do think that that is that is transitioning. I, I was um, fortunate to be at uh, Venture Beats Blueprint event a few weeks ago, and it was all about you know no longer having just these flyover states that never get touched. That there's right. a lot of emerging brilliance that's coming out of you know places like the Midwest. And I think the benefits for me is you know I'm one block away from um, you know eight Fortune 500 companies that are headquartered in Cincinnati. So you know for me I have access to a lot of organizations that, you know, companies out of Silicon Valley never have access to or fight to get into. Right. Um, right. You know, I think that that's a very, you know, different, um, you know, it's a different asset. I also think that, you know, the benefit in Cincinnati, too, is that we have a very strong startup community and we all believe we rise together. So it's not, um, although, you know, there's, of course, competition within everyone's spaces, um, I think that, you know, even my competition, I would never be hesitant to pick up the phone and say, hey, we're going through a challenge. Did you guys go through the same challenge? How do we how do we break this together? And is there a partnership opportunity? Is there is there ways that we can help one another? I think that that's um, probably a Midwest value that you see very strong in our city. And I think that, you know, another area that's been very interesting is that um, big co's, as we call them, or big companies are really investing in time and energy into the startup uh, network specifically in Cincinnati. Um, we have a, a, an organization called Centrifuge that was actually founded by a lot of the big co's um, in Cincinnati, so that the entrepreneurial ecosystem could be fostered and grown. Um, and that has proven to be a, a great support mechanism, um, you know, as an entrepreneur in the Midwest, and it allows us to have a far, a far more reaching grasp um, outside of, of our roots of our backyard. All right. Well, you may, you you should work for the Chamber of Commerce. That was a very compelling <laughs> pitch. <laughs> it's your PR Excellent. background. Well, Summer, yeah, it's yes, uh, yes, yes. yeah, super interesting. And thanks so much for making the time to to join us today. Thank you so much, Carl. All right. For more information about Tiller, you can go to tiller.com. But let me spell it. It's T I L R. Just those four letters. T I L R.com. Tiller. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.